Back in 2018, the president of Ghana announced plans to build a huge cathedral, something that could rival Westminster Abbey or the Abu Dhabi Grand Mosque. About 70% of Ghanaians are Christian, right? So it's a very religious country. Although it's a secular state, like constitutionally, there's a huge Christian population. That's the FT's West Africa correspondent, Anu Adaoye. He says that when construction on the cathedral broke ground, officials estimated it would cost $100 million to build. But more recently, that number has ballooned to $400 million. That price tag has the small West African countries searching for investors to get them to the finish line, but with little luck. In the center of Ghana's capital, Accra, the construction site sits abandoned. It's devoid of activity right now. There's nothing. And then you see a lot of cranes hanging, towering up in the sky. Anu saw the area for himself this spring when he visited Accra. He tells me the site's in a fancier part of town, not far from parliament and a soccer stadium. But the cathedral's construction site is basically just empty. There's tons of building materials laying around and not much else. There's some people who love it and there's people who think right now it's the world's most expensive crater. So it's kind of difficult to find anyone who is, you know, in the middle ground. At one time, this cathedral-to-be seemed to promise not only a grand religious site, but also big tourism dollars. Now it's more a symbol of what's happened to Ghana's economy over the last few years. You see, Ghana borrowed money when it was cheap with low interest rates to build out their infrastructure. But now with central banks around the world hiking rates up, that borrowed money has become a lot harder to pay back. And Ghana isn't alone in this problem either. Anu says other African countries are in the same boat. It's sometimes a catch-22 situation. You need infrastructure to develop, you need infrastructure to grow, but some of that is built on debts that you took at in a world of low interest rates, right? But now that interest rates are soaring and the US dollar is strengthening, you're essentially caught in this very unfortunate loop of paying back your debts, but also, you know, spending money on not only infrastructure, but also very crucial things like health and education and security. So sometimes it's this very severe juggling act that some of these countries have to do. That debt loop Anu's describing has been impossible to break for decades, and it leaves African countries in danger of being left further behind. With debt piled up, they're locked out of loan markets, unable to finish infrastructure projects, and that leaves everyday people in these countries struggling. Kella Tendera from the Financial Times. On today's episode of Behind the Money, we're going to take a closer look at Ghana as an example of this debt loop that many African countries are stuck in. We're going to explain how these countries got here and what needs to change for the cycle to break. For decades, Ghana's economy has been a success story in Africa. The Ghanaian economy itself is largely reliant on commodities. So it's a major producer of gold and cocoa. It also produces oil. These commodities are mostly exported. It has one of the highest GDP per head in West Africa. And also just security-wise, you know, 
It's this oasis of safety in a region that has been affected by coups and violence by armed groups. But despite its success, Ghana has also repeatedly visited the IMF for help. In its history since it got independence in 1957, Ghana has now gone to the IMF 17 times. So Ghana sometimes has this cycle of not necessarily boom and bust, but like very topsy-turvy economic cycles. And I think one thing that politicians have learned in Ghana is that when they need help, external help, they typically tend to go early and often. Because when you get help from the fund, it helps you restore investor confidence back into your country. In 2017, Ghana welcomed a new president, Nana Akufo Addo. He was someone who seemed like he could move the country away from depending on the IMF so much. I will do my best to serve your interests and put our country back on the path of progress and prosperity. That's him speaking there, right after he was elected. He and his new patriotic party, or NPP, promised a practical and fiscally responsible government. Not long after, Akufo Otto announced his plans for a national cathedral. But then came the COVID-19 pandemic and commodity-driven economies like Ghana's were hit hard. As global supply chains shut down, the government borrowed a ton from different lenders to insulate its economy. And then Akufo Addo faced another election. And just to cap it off, in 2020, despite the growing debt load, despite the condition of the economy, the NPP, which is the president's party, resorted to a habit you know, that is kind of ingrained in the rough and tumble of Ghanaian politics, which is overspending in an election year. So the cathedral project wasn't the only thing the government was spending big on. For example, the government gave everyone free water, right? So no one was paying for water running through their taps at all. The government brought in cheaper electricity tariffs as well. And this was, according to the government, to provide support for people in a difficult year, which as we all agree, 2020 was. And governments across the world, you know, gave economic relief to their citizens. But in an election year, it's also hard not to see some of these as, you know, as a means of currying favor from voters. And those moves seem to work. Akufo Addo won re-election. But the pandemic, the election spending, they'd both dug Ghana pretty deep debt hole. And then to top it off. When the effects of the pandemic were becoming less pronounced in early 2022, and African countries, including Ghana, were gingerly making their steps toward recovery. Vladimir Putin rolled his tanks into Ukraine in February of last year, and then the price of fuel and food just rose sharply in Ghana, and pretty much everything went bust. All of these factors together have left Ghana billions of dollars in debt. Anu says that right now, servicing debt takes up about 70% of the government's revenue. So Akufo Addo's original promise of a fiscally responsible government has pretty much fallen to pieces. Last year, the three global ratings agencies, S&P, Moody's, and Fitch, all downgraded Ghana to junk status, which essentially means that a country's government might not have enough money to pay back what it's borrowed. Remember, Ghana borrowed in a low interest rate environment, but now that interest rates are higher, its debts have become tougher to pay off. Everyone sat up and realized there were significant concerns about Ghana's ability to repay its loans. 
And then there were people clamoring for the Ghanaian government to seek help from the IMF. And as I said, Ghana is no stranger to getting money from the fund. But the finance minister insisted that Ghana, as a proud nation, would not seek help from the IMF. This was what he said early last year. And some of it was just pure politicking because the last time Ghana got a program in 2015 was under a different party. And so this current administration, which has you know built this image of being economically savvy and being technocratic, kind of saw it as accepting defeat if they sought help from the fund. And so they did not. But I think eventually reality won out. Ghana defaulted on its debts last December. That pushed the IMF to approve a $3 billion bailout for the country. And Ghana received the first portion of that money last month. That money will hopefully bring relief to people like Tracy Aloko. Anu met her while she was out on a grocery run at a market in Accra. Yeah, I'm sorry, what's your name? I'm Tracy Aloko. Tracy? Aloko. How can I spell Aloko? In this recording, she's holding a bag of tomatoes and tells Anu that at the start of this year, her bag would have cost 20 Ghanaian setis. Now it's costing her 50 setis, more than double the price in January. I'm telling you, almost everything is up. We can't even afford it. It's, it's like hell. You go to Gary like this, you read the news and see that, you know, people in the UK are complaining about 80% inflation. How about 41% right now in Ghana? These real-life, everyday decisions that, you know, it's easy to get lost in numbers and all that, but this is how it's affecting people's everyday lives. The IMF's first payout has had one positive effect so far. One immediate effect we've seen now is that at its most recent monetary policy committee meeting, the Bank of Ghana kept interest rates at 29.5%. And I think this is the first time in in about a year that the Bank of Ghana has not raised rates. Anu says that's brought inflation down from its peak of 54% last year. It's still very high. People are still complaining about how expensive things are. And I think 41% is a world away from the 54% it was. But this bailout isn't the end-all be-all. Ghana owes more than $5 billion to its lender countries and more than $15 billion to commercial creditors. Anu says the government has a lot of other changes to make in order to keep this debt under control. The first tranche of the money is in, but there's still a long road ahead of Ghana. There's been a few fiscal remedies they have to take. So Ghana has to get better at tax collection, for example. It currently collects about 13% of GDP as taxes. The government's own target is about 20%. So they need to get better at that. They've been trying some revenue generation means. So there's been new taxes on cigarettes, on booze. There's people who are saying that the government needs to get a handle on the public service, especially the political appointees. There's this sense that there's too many ministries and too many deputies. Perhaps there should be some cuts there. This might seem like a simple case of money mismanagement and overspending that's specific to Ghana and its current leadership. But Anu says it's bigger than that. For years, Ghana's been a successful model for developing nations in Africa. And if the gold standard is hitting a rough patch, that's not a great sign for everyone else. Roughly 20 other countries in Africa find themselves in a similar situation, at risk of defaulting on their debts 
and some considering the IMF's help. We've already seen Kenya, for example, get $1 billion from the fund. The Ivory Coast just agreed a $3.5 billion deal with the fund. Nigeria spent 96% of its revenue servicing debt last year, right? So there's red lights blinking, flashing in a number of different countries. The FT's Africa editor, David Pilling, has seen that across the continent and says developing nations get caught in a tough cycle. Development is a difficult game. You have to invest in the future and you hope that your economy grows, but you might be hit by all sorts of factors, whether it be COVID or the war in Ukraine. There are, of course, mistakes made by the governments in the countries concerned. There is outright corruption. There are projects that don't look so clever once they're built. For years, there were very low interest rates, uh, even negative interest rates in the West. And investors searching for yield looked to so-called frontier markets, many of which were in Africa. As interest rates rise in the West and begin to normalize, the incentive to look abroad becomes less. Uh, Money flows back from emerging markets back into more secure, safer havens. And that only exacerbates the problem. So this is the the cliche, the perfect storm. Now, an infrastructure project that doesn't turn out as profitable as a country had hoped is pretty common. I mean, Africa is not the only region of the world uh, to be guilty of white elephant projects. In the UK, we have the Millennium Dome. We have the Elizabeth Line that some people would say is such a project. Japan has famously, you know, built bridges to nowhere over decades. But David tells me that African countries see their debt load as unfairly large and particularly hard to get out of. Several African countries have been downgraded to junk status, like Ghana. David says that seals these African nations' fates as risky markets. The implications of that are quite simple. It will become harder for them to borrow, perhaps impossible for them to borrow. It will certainly become more expensive if there is a higher perception of risk, then the market will charge you more to lend. But are African markets really that much riskier? I think a lot of African leaders now would argue that because the risk perception is higher than is actually warranted, um, that they are being unfairly punished, and not only punished in terms of paying higher interest rates, but that then that is in danger of becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy because, of course, the higher interest rate they're charged, the more likely they are to run into trouble and not be able to repay those debts. Talking specifically about the Ghana case, and Moody's downgraded Ghana to junk status last year. Ghana railed at this. They called it a desktop exercise by somebody who'd never even been to Ghana. They implied that there was an institutional bias against Ghana. And I think that you could say they implied that there was a kind of a a racism inbuilt into the financial system. Now, Ghana has now defaulted. The question is, did it default because it was on an unsustainable debt path, which Moody's correctly predicted? Or did it default because Moody's downgraded its debt, made its borrowing more expensive, raised the perception of risk, and therefore pushed it over the edge? Um, It's the chicken and the egg question to a certain extent. David says there are a few different arguments for what could be done to get Ghana and other countries out of this situation. You could argue they should lend less. You could say, look, this lending has got lots of governments into trouble. Some of them can't repay. The solution is lend less. You could argue they should lend an awful lot more. 
at cheaper rates, that there should be a kind of a Marshall Plan, that countries are owed money because of history, because of colonialism, because of slavery, because of fossil fuel use in the West that is now coming to bite countries in the global South. I think what a lot of African countries are calling for is, yes, easier debt terms, more concessional financing. But those things are out of these countries' control. They rest on what international lenders choose to do. David says one thing that is in their control is building infrastructure that's profitable enough to pay back the debts on their own, regardless of how high interest rates may jump. Maybe that's easier said than done. I think the cathedral you know, is not the reason for Ghana's debt default. It's in a sense symbolic. So the point is, how much capacity does a country have to borrow and does it invest that money in sustainable projects that then, at the end of the day, allow it to repay its debts? Behind the Money is hosted by me, Michaela Tendera. Safia Ahmed is our producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Thanks for listening. See you next week.